Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke 24, and that's where we're going to spend our time together. We only have a couple of weeks left in Luke's Gospel. After that, we're going to do a uh, little series just for about a month uh, about what is an evangelical. We hear that term all the time. We get called that. There's probably no name that, is, that, uh, that you get called um, more often that, that maybe you've never really stopped to think of. People call you an evangelical all the time. What does that actually mean? And uh, what do we actually believe if we say we are evangelicals? So we're going to talk about that. Um, and then we will be jumping into part two of the book of Luke, which is, of course, the book of Acts, also written by uh, Luke the physician. But this morning, our business is still in Luke 24. And as we get started, I wonder out loud this morning, how many of you may feel discouraged as you came here today, not even because the world is bad, it's always bad out there, but if you're honest, you're more discouraged because of what's in the mirror. You look at yourself and you go, man, I'm tired of feeling far from God. I'm tired of feeling cold in my prayers, feeling all of these uh, these, these, these little doubts that, that just peck away at me. I, I'm tired of feeling worn down by the sin that pops up all the time. Some sins that I feel like I've been battling with for decades and they just keep popping up. I want to fight it. Tomorrow becomes today. The urgent takes over the necessary. And you feel like you're losing that battle. You, you wonder sometimes if you're living would be easier if you just took on the lifestyle of your unbelieving friends. Maybe that would yield more joy. Maybe, maybe you are even disappointed with Jesus this morning. And you would never say that out loud because that's not the sort of thing you say, right? Like, it's just easier. Like, somebody comes up to you, like, you know, hey, Brandon, how are you doing today? Well, I'm drowning in discouragement, doubting God, wondering if Jesus is who I thought he was, but, you know, kind of hoping that maybe the Cowboys will win this weekend. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's just not how we talk to each other at church. So if somebody comes up and says, how you're doing, even if all of what I just talked about is going on in your heart, you're like, I'm fine. I'm good. Because you just don't want to take the conversation in that direction. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers we've had in the last 100 years, said, if I were asked to hazard an opinion as to what is the most prevailing disease in the church today, I would suggest that it is discouragement. John Stott said that Christians' chief occupational hazards are depression and discouragement. And C.S. Lewis said if Satan's arsenal of weapons were restricted to a single one, it would be discouragement. Clearly, men of God throughout the last century, from preachers to philosophers, have understood that discouragement is a relentless, never-going-away, Philistine-like enemy to the Christian. Well, this morning, we have two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they are discouraged, like many of you might be, here in Luke 24. They are on the brink of despair. They are disappointed with who Jesus turned out to be. And yet, by the end of the passage, they are joyful witnesses for him. How do we get there? How, how do we get from that place of discouragement, that place where maybe you were hiding a thought, you don't want to say it out loud, but deep down you're like, I'm kind of disappointed. I'm not sure if Jesus is who I thought he was. How do we get from there to going and telling people that he's the only hope for their soul, to telling people that he is risen? 
We'll see that in this passage this morning. Luke 24, I'm going to start reading for us in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him, to, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray together. Father, what good news in this passage this morning, what good news that all of the scriptures point to your son and that your uh, son is wanting to know us, that he wants a relationship with us, that he wants us to connect us to you, uh, that we can find all of the forgiveness and mercy that we need in him. And Father, it is good news that he has risen and he has conquered death and he offers to us eternal life and he offers to us himself. Help us to understand the word. Lord, because we know that in understanding the word in our hands, we will understand Jesus the word. We can know him and love him and, and intimately draw close to him. And so, Father, do your work in the hearts of your people through your word this morning. It's in your name that we are praying. Amen. Two of Jesus' followers are walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. This is about a seven-mile journey. Like for you and I to get up and be like, I'm going to take a seven mile hike today. That's an event, right? You're definitely going to post about it on social media. You'll probably tell people about it for months, this big event. For them, that's just like a day, all right? That's just going from town to town. It took about two to four hours probably for them to get there depending on their pace. And so they're on this two to four hour journey. And we learn that one of the disciples, his name is Cleopas. Some people believe it's the same person from John 19.25, which says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. We really don't have any way of knowing 
We don't need to make too much of it, but Kent Hughes, who is a brilliant Bible commentator, he believes that this is actually Cleopas and Mary, Jesus' aunt and uncle, on the road. Again, we we don't need to to plant a flag either way. We don't need to worry about it too much. But I'm not going to refer to the two disciples in the sermon as men going forward because I don't want to call Jesus' aunt a man accidentally, all right, because I fear him too much for that. So uh, we're just going to say the two disciples as, as we go forward. But they're on this journey, and they're talking about what has taken place in Jerusalem that week. They're talking about the triumphal entry, certainly. And Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people shouting Hosanna. They would have talked about him flipping the the tables in the temple uh, and and, and to really turn the entire temple on its head and then to teach there on Wednesday and Thursday. They would have talked about his arrest. They would have uh, been talking about his trial. They would have talked about the release of Barabbas and the condemnation of Jesus, the horror of the crucifixion on Good Friday, the confusion over where his body is at on on that Easter morning. All that must have been in their conversation. And at some point in this conversation, they are joined by a stranger. And this is when Luke just injects a ton of irony into his narrative. He, he, we, we are all in on the joke, right? Everybody is in on it. The fourth wall is down for, for all of us except the two disciples. Jesus knows it's him, right? We know it's him. The only people that don't know it's him are the two disciples. So all of the conversation between Jesus and these disciples for the rest of this passage are packed with irony because they keep saying things, longing for things, and, and the things that they're wanting and longing for are literally right in front of them, right? So you see in verse 16, they don't recognize him because they're prevented from it. God is keeping these two from being able to see that they are entertaining Jesus on their journey. Why? Maybe God wanted these two to believe the words of Christ before they understood the identity of Christ. Maybe. But we'll we'll get back to that in a moment. In verse 17, he asks them what they're talking about as they're walking on the road. And Cleopas is almost dumbfounded. He's like, how could you not know? How could you not know what we're talking about? Everybody in Jerusalem's talking about the same thing. They're all talking about Jesus. To them, this would be like if you walked up to the water cooler at work on September 12th, 2001, and be like, so what's up, guys? What are you guys talking about? What's, what's the scuttlebutt? You'd be like, what do you mean? It's like the whole nation's talking about one thing. What happened yesterday? This horrible thing that happened yesterday. What do you mean, what are we talking about? That's kind of the reaction you're getting here from Cleopas. He's like, how can you even ask? Are you the only one who's come near Jerusalem and doesn't know what's happened here in these last few days? But Jesus plays along and says, what things? And they begin to tell him about him. About how he was recognized by many in Israel as a prophet. And they recognized him as such because of his teachings and his miracles. That's what they're referring to when they say he was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. He was mighty in what he said in his speaking, and he was also mighty in his deeds and in, in, in the miraculous actions that he took to prove he was the Son of God. But the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to death and crucified him, they say in verse 20. And this has broken their hearts because they believed that he might be the one to redeem Israel. They hoped he was the Messiah. That's what they mean. When they say we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, they're saying we hoped he was God's anointed one. We hoped he was the Christ. We hoped he was the Messiah who was sent by God. 
But now he's dead, and it's late in the third day since his death. And even though there is some confusion surrounding the body and some excitement surrounding the body, they seem to have lost their reason to believe that he was the promised one after all. What this shows us is how the Jewish people truly had no room in their theology for a suffering Messiah. Like they, they could not grasp the idea that the anointed Christ would be crucified and then put in the ground. They expected the Messiah to come and to redeem Israel, and that was much more of a physical expectation than a spiritual expectation, because they wanted a Messiah who would come and redeem them by liberating them from Roman oppression and any oppression going forward, who would forever establish the kingdom that was promised to David in the land that was promised to Abraham. That's what they want. And the Passover has just been celebrated. And so they're like, man, we want somebody like Moses to come here and deliver us the same way that our people were delivered from Egypt. And yet they miss the fact that in order for that deliverance to take place, a price had to be paid. The only reason the Israelites didn't die in Egypt is because they followed God's instructions and they believed God, right? They slaughtered the Passover lamb, they put the blood on the doorpost, and so death passed over their homes. Not because they were sinless, but because they had followed God's instruction. A sacrifice had been made that looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would be made in Christ. But they have, they, they, they have just celebrated Passover. Gallons and gallons and gallons of blood have been spilt Because at the Passover celebration, the priests would have lined up as all of the Jewish people brought in their sacrifices and they would have cut throat after throat after throat and the blood would have flowed, showing once again how horrible our sin is before God. They've just seen this, but they're not connecting the dots. They don't understand that the Messiah had to come and die like those sheep. That all of the blood coming from their throats is pointing to the blood that would flow from his wrists and from his feet and from his brow. They didn't understand that he had to be the final payment. He had to be the final lamb. And seeing him crucified broke their hope that he was the anointed one when really it should have confirmed it. They condemned themselves a bit in verses 22 through 24. They are witnesses or or they're witnesses to the witnesses, we should say, right? There are people telling them, hey, we came, the body wasn't there. There were angels there who told us that Jesus is resurrected. These women, while everyone seems to be interested in the story, they don't seem to be believed. The news is amazing, but ultimately it seems like it's being dismissed. And so they are discouraged and they are disbelieving the earliest proclamations regarding Jesus' resurrection. And so at this point, what does Jesus do? He corrects them. He shepherds them. It's gentle and it's loving, but it's correction. I mean, they're failing to understand the Word of God and they're failing to believe in the Word of God and they're failing to believe in the gospel witness of the women who spoke to the angels at the tomb. And so Jesus is going to use His words to correct their unbelief and to shepherd them to faith. They're discouraged. They're doubting. Seeing Him crucified has shattered their messianic hope. It doesn't need to be this way. So He says to them, uh, you're foolish, right? And, and slow of heart. 
In Hebrew culture, being a fool had nothing to do with your intelligence level. You could be the most educated person in the world. You could still be a fool to a Jewish person because it had to do with your morality. It's the fool who says in his heart there is no God and then lives as if there is no accountability. To doubt God's words, to dismiss God's words, it's an immoral and foolish thing to do despite how intellectually brilliant you might be. So when he calls them foolish, he's not commenting on their intellect. He's commenting on the moral condition of their hearts. They need to be quicker in their hearts to cast away their doubts by recalling the word of God and trusting the word of God. If they would just recall the prophets and believe the prophets, they would have known that suffering does not disqualify someone as the Messiah. Instead, it confirms it because the prophets said that the Messiah would suffer. The prophets told us he would be despised and rejected and that he would be a man of sorrows acquainted with much grief. They told us he would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, that he would be oppressed and he would be afflicted and like a lamb he would be led to the slaughter and by oppression and judgment he would be taken away and his grave would be made with the wicked. That's just one chapter of the prophets. That's just Isaiah 53 and that's not even all of it. There's more prophecy there I could have, could have just given to us here to, to show how Jesus confirms uh, the words of, of God's preachers in the Old Covenant. It's just one chapter, but the words must be believed, and they are foolish in their hearts because they are slow to believe them. And so in verse 27, Jesus interprets the Scriptures to them. From Moses, meaning the first five books of the Bible and, and really referring to the law, to the prophets, to the wisdom books, to the history books, Jesus shows them how everything from the story of the garden to the story of the judges to uh, what's going on with David and, and him taking over uh, as king after Saul to the Psalms and the Proverbs and Song of Solomon to the words of the major prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and the minor prophets like Amos and Jonah and Zephaniah, that all of it, all of it is pointing to Him, the final revelation from God, the Word made flesh. It's all fulfilled in Him. I was at a conference in 2018, and this guy Ligon Duncan, who is the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, brilliant pastor, brilliant preacher, he gets up on the stage and he preaches for about 40 minutes. And in that 40 minutes, he tells us the whole story of the Bible. There's 11,000 preachers in the room on the first two rows in, in uh, the Yum Center in, in Louisville, Kentucky. You had, you know, guys who have written books that are on your shelves a lot. You know what I'm saying? It was like, the, it's one of these conferences you go to. It's like the Woodstock of preachers, okay? I mean, they're all just sitting there and you're waiting for each one to get up and give their sermon. And it's amazing. It truly is. If you have a chance to go to something like that, it's absolutely amazing. So he gets up there in front of 11,000 preachers in the room and two rows of some of the most heralded preachers of our generation, and he gets up there and in about 40 minutes just relays the Bible to us. And when he got done, the whole room stood up and just gave a standing ovation. Part of the ovation was to the Lord because we were just rejoicing in the richness of the Word, but I, yeah, part of it was just, you know, well done, <laughs> like well done. I mean, you gave us the whole book in 40 minutes, and it was faithful, and it was good, and we're all just, you know, we're all torn up about it, right? And, and, and it was awesome. One of the best sermons I've ever heard. That sermon would not hold the flame of a matchstick to the expository work that went down in the Emmaus Road. And if Ligon Duncan was standing right here, he would say, Amen. 
The two disciples hear God in the flesh explain the whole Bible to them on a seven-mile journey. How's that for a good way to, to spend your travel time? I don't know what podcasts you like to listen to while you travel. It's not as good as Jesus, the Word in the flesh, saying, let me tell you what the whole Bible means. And so he does. Surely he would have taught them that he is the child who will step on the head of the serpent in the first gospel promise that's made in Genesis 3.15. He is Eve's son who will crush the dragon's head. Surely he expounded upon Genesis 6-9 through and explained how he is the true ark where people find their refuge from the judgment of God. You know he had to stop off at Genesis 22 to show him how the near sacrifice of Isaac pointed toward God's sacrifice of his own son. He couldn't skip the story of the Exodus. He must have taught them how he is the true Passover lamb who dies in his people's place so that death would pass over them like we just talked about. How he is the true manna from heaven, the bread of life. Maybe he would have pointed to the ceremonial aspects of the law and how they pointed to his coming. Maybe he would have pointed to the furniture and the measurements of the temple and how they pointed to his coming. Maybe he would have pointed to Psalm 22 and other messianic psalms and and his fulfillment of those. Surely he walked them down the words of the prophets, Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, Micah 5, Zechariah 11, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, it all points to him. And in this two to four hour journey, he's saying, my birth, my life, my death, my ultimate rule and reign, it's all about that. And yet he's still not telling him that he's him. So he's just saying, this Jesus that you're talking about, listen, don't be disheartened that, that, that he's not the Christ. Look at the scriptures. He's the Christ. He is. It's all been about him. And yet they still don't realize that he's preaching to them about himself. So they get near to the village. They don't want to part. They don't want to leave this amazing teacher. And so they ask him, don't go on in your journey. Stay with us. And he agrees. They show hospitality. They prepare meal. But Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it, which that's a strange act. Usually the host would bless the bread. For him to do it is him kind of taking charge of the situation. Maybe they were so worked up about uh, what they had just learned on the road that they had forgotten to bless the bread. But I think it's more likely that he wanted to bless the bread because this was the moment that he chose to reveal himself to them. And so as he takes the bread and he blesses it and he gives it to them, their eyes are open, it says in verse 31, and they realize it's Jesus they have been with. And then he vanishes from their sight. The Greek word means to disappear. So it seems like Jesus' resurrected body is able to leave a scene a whole lot faster than than one would expect. The two disciples say, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And once they realize who he is, that intense passion they felt in their hearts makes sense. And so in verses 33 through 36, they just go from being these discouraged, doubting disciples to joyfully proclaiming that they have seen with their own eyes the resurrected Messiah. It's been a very long day for them. It's been a very long journey for them. It's been a very long week for them. But this news cannot wait. It doesn't matter how tired they are, how weary they are, how much they might want to sleep. They, they, they just want to get to Jerusalem. They have to tell the apostles. And so they go and they tell them that Jesus is risen and that he's also appeared to Simon Peter. We don't have any details of that meeting with Peter. It seems separate 
from the restoring conversation he has with Peter uh, on the beach in the book of John. And whatever this undocumented meeting is that Jesus had with Peter, it's probably the one Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15 when it says that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Whatever it was, Peter was never the same after that. Never the same after that. Once Peter saw Jesus alive, he had an unshakable devotion to him for the rest of his life, as did the rest of the apostles. Because Peter, like these two disciples, became a witness to the resurrection. As we look at this passage, Jesus' revelation of himself to the disciples on the road to Emmaus has a few effects, and I'm going to use those effects to give us our, our teaching points as we leave today. So, Uh, The first effect is that they recognize Jesus for who he is. It takes time, but eventually the words of Christ is what leads the disciples of Christ to recognize him as the resurrected Messiah. And I say the words of Christ because that's what causes the light bulb to go off for them. It's what he said on the road. It's how it made them feel, combined with his dinner blessing that makes them recognize this is Jesus. And again, I think this is maybe why God kept them from recognizing that it was Jesus. He wanted them to see him and believe because of what God's word says, not just because they could reach out and touch him. So number one for us this morning, only when we see the Christ of the scriptures will we recognize him for who he is. Only when we see the Christ of the scriptures will we recognize him for who he is. People all around you are on a search for the truth. Some of you may have come here today on a search for the truth. In our culture, the search is mostly within because we have been told that, you know, you need to find happiness in being the true you. That's why you hear people say things like, well, you do you. Or, I'm just trying to find my truth. The reality is, is there's truth in the world and there's error in the world. There are things that are true and there are things that are not true. You can say things are true for you, But if they are not true, they are not true. Your feelings do not change reality. You can say something is not true for you, but if it is true, then it is true. Your feelings don't determine what is true and what is not. If you don't believe me, I would, I'm not going to encourage you, but you know, you could go 20 miles an hour over the speed limit for the rest of January. And when you get pulled over, just say, my truth doesn't match up with the posted speed limit restriction. And just see how the man or the woman holding the badge reacts to your feelings. Spoiler alert, they don't care, right? Because what's true is true, whether or not you feel that it is true. So we can all day long talk about who we think Jesus is, or what we think Jesus is like, or what we believe the Bible is saying about him. But what we say about Jesus does not determine the truth about who he is, or what he's like, or what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not profess itself to be one perspective of the truth harmonized with the other truth claims of the world. It has no care about whether or not its claims makes the other holy books out to be liars. It simply tells the truth. All the truth that we need to know in order to have a relationship with God and live for Him. Not just now, but for all of eternity. When the Bible talks about itself, it says things like this. The sum of your word is truth. When Paul writes to Timothy and he's telling him how to run his life in 2 Timothy 2, he says, do, yourself, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 
The Bible is a word of truth, and it is a tried and proven word of truth. Psalm 119, verse 140 says, Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. It's an upright word of truth. Psalm 33, verse 4, For the word of the Lord is upright. It's settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And for those who love it, it is, as Psalm 119, 105 says, a lamp to the feet, a light to the path. And the word is good. Proverbs 16, 20 says, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. And this word that is true and upright and proven and settled and eternal and light-giving and good makes Jesus, the glorious Son of Heaven, its content, its point, its crown jewel. And that's what Jesus showed those two disciples on the Emmaus Road. He showed them that the word of truth, which defines truth and error for the entire universe, all points to Jesus being the Redeemer of Israel and the Savior of the world. The crucified and resurrected King who delivers His people and keeps His promises. And Jesus wanted these two disciples to put their faith in him based on that revealed word. He wanted their hearts to burn within them because they were believing God's word which reveals Jesus as the Messiah. Their hopes had been dashed, but if they would just understand and trust the word, they would see that the very cross that dashed their hopes is their hope. And so it is with us. With so many voices in the world, it is tempting to doubt God's Word. It's tempting to look for other places for truth. You're not going to find it there, at least not the whole of it. The pure truth is only found in God's Word, and the pure truth reveals to us that Jesus is the Messiah. So, when you hear the lies of the world and they start to sound good to you, we need to do what? Return to the Word. When the ridiculous philosophies of the world start to convince us that sin is sweeter than Jesus, we need to come back to the Word. When we doubt the very things that define us as Christian people, it's the Word of truth that we have to call home. Now, each one of my teaching points begets another. So, teaching point number one, only when we see the Christ of the Scriptures will we recognize Him for who He is. Teaching point number two, only the living Word of God can cause Uh, truly cause our hearts to burn within us. It's only in the Scriptures that you're really going to find Jesus and recognize Him for who He is, right? And it's only the Scriptures that are going to cause our hearts to truly burn. God has designed your heart to burn for His Word. When He made you, He made you to love His Word. He created you to be consumed with a passion for His Word. People will find temporary happiness in fleeting moments of ecstasy in the things of the world, but it's only God's Word that can make our hearts burn with the spiritual fire that His eternal truth brings. And so when the disciples ask, did not our hearts burn within us in verse 32, the Greek word there for burn, it appears 13 times in the New Testament, and most of them are in Revelation. And interestingly enough, that Greek word is the same one that is used to describe the burning fire of the Holy Spirit of God before the throne of the Father. And it is the same word used to describe the burning fires of hell that will carry on for all of eternity. So we're talking about an intense burning. And we're talking about a burning that is not meant to stop. 
God does not just want your heart to burn for His Word today. He wants your heart to burn for His Word forever. And that is why the same Greek word is used here that is used when describing the eternal Spirit of God and the eternal punishment of hell. But this sort of consuming passion for God's truth only comes about when we understand His Son for who He is. And that is what makes the Bible so special. For a book written by at least 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years on three different continents in multiple languages, to have one cohesive message is amazing. I've read books by one author who doesn't have one cohesive message. You're like, man, this guy's all over the place. What is he even trying to say here? 40 different authors, from some of them extremely educated noblemen serving in prestigious positions, some of them common fishermen. One cohesive message from Genesis to Revelation, it's Jesus. And that is why our hearts burn over the Word. It is because we were created by God to know and to love His truth, and that truth is embodied in His Son. And so when we are understanding the Word and we're reading it and we see Christ in the Word, our hearts ignite because they were made to ignite. That's why the Middle Ages were such a period of darkness for the church. The clergy locked up the Word. Only the clergy were allowed to handle it. Even then, many of them would perform services and they had no clue what they were even saying because they were talking in Latin, but they didn't know Latin. So they just learned enough Latin to be able to lead the Mass. The theology of the average churchgoer in the 1200s was semi-pagan folk Christianity. They had no access to the Bible. They had no avenue to engage with the actual truth. The church failed to teach the truth, therefore the heart of the church was darkened. And so, I know you're like, all right, so then Martin Luther came and nailed that thing to the door. No, 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 no. That was like 300 years. we got got to go backwards. There, There were people standing up right in the midst of the darkness in the Middle Ages saying, this isn't right. Here's a guy named Robert Grossetist who was a bishop in England in 1235 and he preached in English to his English congregation because he said the people of the church ought to understand what's being said. And he also said the first duty of a pastor, the first duty of the clergy is not to give mass to people, it's to give the Bible to people. And then Rome said, you can't say that. And he said, yeah, the Pope's the Antichrist. And the Pope couldn't kill him because he was such a respected scholar and scientist and linguist that the Pope was like, can't really do anything about that. Just let it go. We always talk about Luther nailing the paper to the door, but the tremors of the Reformation were well underway because of people like Grossetus and Wycliffe and Hus. They were all ready and willing to defy Rome. But it wasn't about trying to get power. It was about getting the word into the hands of the church. And for the Word to be the authority of the church. There is so much we can know in the world, but only one book is giving us the knowledge while also being living and active. Only one book can cause our hearts to burn within us, and that will only happen when the book is taught with the Son of God as the point of the whole story. So we must submit ourselves to it and pursue knowing God through His Bible. Let me ask you, when is the last time your heart burned over the Word? Really burned? When's the last time you left the teaching of the Word and you just couldn't stop thinking about it? If it's been a while, I, I want to submit to you that maybe it's time to move past Bible study as an event and it's because you need to have Bible study as more of a discipline. 
Right now, you mostly just study the Bible when somebody like me is up here and they got one open, or your Sunday school teacher has it open, and you're attending a Bible study event of some sort. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm just telling you, studying the Bible, it can't just be an event, even if that event is twice a week. This is not the Middle Ages. The Word of God is not locked up from you, brother or sister. There has never been a time in the history of the church where we have had more access to biblical knowledge in our language. Never. We have no excuse I told my son the other day, they, the, the people in 1235, the people of Grossetus Church, they would have longed to have a Bible. I said, son, we, we've got 40 of them just strewn about between my office and the house. We've got, we got Bibles everywhere. There must be 400, 500 Bibles just sitting in this church right now. It's all around us. We have no excuses. Your heart may not burn every day because we are fallen creatures who are still being sanctified. Right? I'm not saying every time you walk away from your Bible, you're just going to walk away going, oh, how my heart burns. Sometimes you show up disheveled. Sometimes you walk away going, oh, man, I barely got through that today. I just, I'm such a, a wretch. Lord, forgive me. But you show up there again tomorrow, and you keep showing up there, he will ignite your heart with his living and active word. He will. And he'll drag you away from the sin that keeps you from recognizing his word for what it is in the first place. Only the living word can truly cause our hearts to burn within us. And then to wrap it up, only when our hearts burn within us will we be faithful witnesses. The response these disciples have to seeing the resurrected Christ is to stop what they're doing, to run and tell the apostles in Jerusalem. So they understand Christ for who he is in his word. Their hearts burn within them. They realize that they were breaking bread with him. They run and tell. They run and tell. And this is what happens when God's people have a true understanding of God's Word. That true understanding leads to faith, and that faith is in the risen Christ. And that faith is in that Christ who will come again. That faith is, is in the, uh, the, the fact that all who repent and trust in Christ for salvation will be saved, and then we are witnesses to that faith. That is the pattern we see again and again in Scripture. These were two discouraged and doubting believers that were on the road, and Jesus comes and he lays the word before them, and they are transformed into faithful witnesses. This is what happens. God will take those with slumped shoulders who have decided that, you know what? Maybe everything that I thought was true isn't. He'll take those that are struggling, those that are doubting, those that are having a hard time, and he will use his word to transform their hearts and he will make a faithful witness of them. I think part of the reason we don't have a more prophetic witness like this in our culture is because we don't spend enough time in the word. Our hearts are not burning, so our mouths are not telling. We watch the newest Netflix show, so we evangelize the mess out of that. Everybody's got to watch this show. It's the best show. You got to watch this show. The show's going to blow your mind. You watch this show. If you watch this show, man, we're on it. We're on it. Because we give ourselves to it. You got to try this app on my phone that I spend eight hours a day on. You got to try this app. I'm on it all the time. I'm fired up about it. Therefore, I'm telling people about it. Maybe we'd have a stronger witness if we were in the word more. Our hearts are not burning. Our mouths are not telling. We need to see him for who he is in the word so we can tell the world. We have this time of increasing hostility coming to the church in the West. Listen to me. There are real questions hanging over the church in the West. For us in America, will we get to keep our tax-exempt status? 
What's that look like over the next 20 years? Will a basic historically orthodox belief in biblical sexual ethics be universally seen as bigotry and hatred? There's a new movie that is out, it's the most popular independent film of all time called The Whale, and one of the major themes of the movie is how Christianity is oppressive to LGBTQ people because it will not allow them to be who they truly are, and that the Bible teaches hateful things to people of that orientation. So will movies like that convince our culture to look at people like us and say, you guys are full of hatred and you're evil people? Will it even be legal to evangelize? I I certainly hope it will. I hope that our religious liberty that so many have fought and died for remains intact, but I don't know the answer to these questions any more than you do. Here's what we do know. What will the church need when things get hostile? It's not going to be the best branding. It's not going to be the most state-of-the-art music or the coolest light show or, you know, a, a, a snappy new children's department. We can pursue those things in as much as they will help us to be excellent and and help us lead people to Jesus. But what's going to carry the church when things get hostile is the Word. It's the Bible. It's not whatever pragmatic thing we come up with that makes us think we're so clever. The only meaningful witness we will have will be when we witness to the Word. The world does not need your relevance, it doesn't need your cuteness, it doesn't need us to try and copycat what they're doing, because let's be honest, when we try, we tend to do worse versions of it. Knockoffs, right? That's not what they need from us. They need the Christ whose word causes worshiping hearts to burn within. That's their only hope. So will you give it to them? Will you tell them about the Christ of the living and active word? Will you invite them to church? Will you pray for them that their hearts might burn like yours does? And I know that as I say that, some of you are like, brother, I'm doing all I can to survive every day. You want me to read my Bible? Okay, I'm leaving here ready to read my Bible. Now you want me to tell people too? I got to talk to people. It's responsive. Do you see how it's responsive? They, They... See Jesus who he is, their hearts burn, they got to go and tell. It's, it, it's not, we treat evangelism in America the same way we, te- we treat conversations where we're really mad at people. Have you noticed that? i got to sit down and tell them about Jesus. The same way we like want to sit down and tell them we're mad that they stood us up for lunch two weeks ago. Like, I'm going to have this big confrontation. It's like, maybe we just need to take what we're learning in our Bibles and to just share it matter-of-factly throughout our day with the people that are around us. So when the suffering come to us, say, hey, you go to church, don't you? Would you pray for me? Say, I will definitely pray for you. And this is the scripture I'm going to pray for you. When somebody's confused and they say, can you offer me some advice? Don't offer them advice out of your still being sanctified heart. Say, yeah, I've got some ancient Jewish proverbs I would love to share. Right? That you know is scripture, even if you don't say chapter and verse. Let the passion that is within you for the word compel you to a natural, responsive witness. And one day, those seeds in the providence of God just might lead your friend or your neighbor or your loved one to have a heart that burns for the word just like you. See him in the scriptures. Your heart will burn. Share that passion with the world. This is what we are called to. The band's going to come now, close us up. And um, we're going to have a time of prayer here in just a moment. But I just want to say to you that if you are really discouraged, um, 
I want to say, I, I'm going to be at the meet the pastor table afterwards. If you would like to talk about how to read your Bible every day uh, in, in finding a consistent thing that will work for you, okay, because you want to be a faithful witness, you don't want to be discouraged, you want what we're talking about this morning, you want to be, have a heart that burns within you for the Word and then is responsibly telling people, you want this, but you're like, I just have always struggled to read the Bible every day. Don't be ashamed of that. Right? That's, that's not going to get you further down the road of sanctification and being a faithful witness. I would love to talk to you about it. So no shame, no condemnation. Just come and say, hey, I would love, I would love if you could help me find a, a consistent way to read my Bible. I'll be there to talk about it. Or you can just text or email us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. And uh, we would love to get you set up because, hey, I, I know that we're already, what, 15 days into 2023. Who cares about resolutions? Today's the day to start reading your Bible every day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you that you have spoken so that we would know truth from error. Thank you that you have spoken so we would know love from hate. Thank you that you have spoken so we would know how to be saved and not be condemned. And Lord, I pray that we would love it more and I pray that we would be willing to stand up for it. I pray that we would um, be faithful to tell people about it, that we would be faithful to study it. And Father, I pray that our hearts would burn within us over what we see in the Word, and our hearts burn because when we look there, we find, we find you, Jesus. And then I pray that we would be faithful, God, that we would go from potentially being a discouraged and doubting person to this week, not a month from now when we get our act together, this week, to read our Bible this week and to share that with people this week and to pray for people this week, God. You want to do awesome and amazing things through our church members. I know that. And sometimes I think, God, we think that's for somebody else, but it's not. It's for anybody who's your child, Lord. You want to take them and you want to transform their hearts with the Word and you want to use them as your ambassador in this world. So may our hearts burn, Lord, and then may our mouths tell. This is what we're asking, and Lord, we know that you love to answer prayers like this, and so we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's respond to the word, and, and let's lift our voices to Jesus.